0: Well, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're in a short series on suffering in 2 Corinthians. It's a book that's just loaded with suffering. The book tells us that the treasure of the gospel resides in these clay pots of humanity and frailty, and hence, until the new age dawns, in this world there is pain, there is sorrow, there is weakness, and conflict, hurt, and brokenness. And yet there is great hope. In these clay pots resides a glorious gospel of great hope. Last week, we talked about how God's comfort meets us in our suffering, not only to give us enough comfort for whatever trial we're going through, but more than enough comfort so that we might be a conduit of His comfort to those who are also suffering. This week, we'll look at another kind of suffering, what we might call redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. Now, for the Christian, in a sense, all suffering is redemptive suffering. All suffering is for our eternal good, according to Romans 8.28. All of our suffering is refining us, is purifying us. Even when we respond poorly to trials of this life, God is faithful to show us our sinfulness, bring us into repentance, and, and restore us, refine us. As we saw last week, all suffering is teaching us to not rely on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. But there are some kinds of suffering which are more like emergency room than physical therapy. I'm talking about discipline, discipline. If everyday suffering or circumstantial suffering is like physical therapy, then suffering of discipline from the Lord is like an emergency room. And that emergency room-like discipline, we can think of that in two different ways. Sometimes the Lord disciplines his children in a private and personal way. No one else knows about it, perhaps. Maybe they know about the circumstances, but they don't know it's discipline. Maybe we ourselves don't know it's discipline. It's a correction for a season of sin and waywardness. Maybe the Lord brings illness or poverty or job loss or maybe he painfully removes idols in our lives and kicks out crutches. This can be discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about this. It tells us that he's a loving father who will get our attention when we've gotten distracted for too long. You can read about that more in Hebrews 12. We won't talk any more about that today. I have in mind instead another kind of discipline or emergency room suffering. One that God uses through people, through the church. You see, sometimes our sin is public enough and persistent enough that brothers and sisters around us know about it and they're concerned for it and they seek to help us with it. And maybe they even have to keep helping us with it. And their help is painful, it's not enjoyable, it's painful. Oh, it's for our good. It is redemptive suffering, but it's often painful. Sometimes it's so painful that it's rejected. Sometimes we resist it and we keep resisting it. So what happens when we keep refusing the care of the body of Christ? What happens when we refuse the emergency room care because it's too painful, we say? What happens when we don't see the spots on the skin of our souls? We don't see the hemorrhaging that's going on, and others do. What happens when we try to run? What does the church do? Is all hope lost? Well, that's what 2 Corinthians 2 is dealing with. Especially starting in verse 6. But let's start reading in verse 1. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 2. We'll read to verse 11. Paul says, "...for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who would have made me rejoice." For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, if you couldn't tell, this passage is talking about that most beloved of biblical topics, that most cherished of Christian practices we call church discipline or excommunication. Of course, I say beloved and cherished with tongue in cheek. It's not at all beloved or cherished, is it? Not today, anyway. In brighter pockets of church history, the church didn't see discipline as a dirty family secret or the fine print on the back of an otherwise great contract. Not the necessary obligation that's obviously here in the Bible and we have to obey it, but boy, if we had it our way, we wouldn't be there. No, the reformers. The reformers of the 1500s and 1600s. They said that the discipline of the church was one of the three marks of the true church. They'd come out of the Roman Catholic Church and they were trying to decide, what is a true church? When should you stay? And when should you go? And they said, the true church has three marks, three identity markers. The true preaching of the gospel the right administration of the sacraments, Lord's Supper and Baptism, and the biblical practice of church discipline. When I say church discipline, I mean that process where a covenanted member of a church is in persistent and prolonged sin and unrepentance, and the church increasingly helps them to see it more overtly and eventually even publicly. Now, this whole thing assumes, in fact, our passage of 2 Corinthians 2 assumes a number of important biblical principles. Like this, that God uses other Christians as a means of our correction. God uses other Christians in our lives even as a means of our final redemption. That the church is a body. That we're connected to each other. At least we should be. We're to be connected in mission and care and in growth. So Christian growth is not an individual enterprise. It's a corporate enterprise. We're to grow together, not just grow separately and see each other once a week. We are our brother's keeper. 2 Corinthians 2 and passages like it assume that the church has boundaries to it that there is an inside of the church and there is an outside of the church and i don't mean church building i don't mean one of the glass doors that you walked through this morning i mean there is a identity of who's in and who's out and that's known this comes from matthew 16 verse 19 There, Jesus gave what some have called the church's charter. It's charter. He said there, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we don't have time to examine this important passage in detail today that one verse and the concept of the keys of the kingdom of heaven occupied something like two weeks debate at the Westminster Assembly back in the 17th century so it's a big deal we don't have time for anything like that but we should point out that this verse has to do with membership and church discipline that's the binding and the loosing those are the keys and Jesus gave the church, or really churches like this one, he gave churches the power to welcome and to remove. Not in any kind of willy-nilly fashion, not subjectively, not, not whimsically, but according to other parts of the Bible. That's what 2 Corinthians 2 has in mind. That's what it's really talking about, even though it doesn't mention any of the same language or the verse explicitly. It stands on the shoulders of Matthew 16, 19 and other passages like it. Now, we are way ahead of ourselves because church discipline, that concept doesn't come up until verse 6 of this chapter, and that's not where we're going to start. Let's go back to verse 1 and we'll work our way through the flow of thought in the passage. In verses one through three, we see first that pain was restrained. Pain was restrained in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. Now, let me warn you up front this first point will take a good while because it it introduces to us or reintroduces to us the backstory of 2 Corinthians. Again, every letter is written with a reason in mind. There's something going on before. There's a problem that needs fixing. There's a reason Paul wrote this. There's a storyline going on before and after this one letter that's sent from Paul to the Corinthians. So we need to talk about that backstory, especially here. So don't worry, as we're at the end of the first point, 15 minutes from now or so, or maybe 20, I don't know. don't think I don't know how many points are on the back of the bulletin. I saw it. All right, I saw it already. In fact, I I came up with those. So don't worry. This won't be a 90-minute sermon. Uh, we'll take some time for this first point more, and then uh, and then we'll sort of hit the gas after that and cruise through the rest. Pastorally, Paul restrained the pain that he could have caused the Corinthians. And he restrained that pain actually by not coming to them. His coming to them would have been more painful. He says in verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. There are a number of references in this passage to another visit. An almost visit. A planned visit that never actually happened. So look back in chapter 1. In verse 15, there he says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Then he asks, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? What's his point? Well, verse 23, I call God to witness against me. I call God to testify if I'm lying. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, even though that was originally the plan. This almost visit is important to understanding 2 Corinthians and especially our passage here in chapter 2. It's not immediately clear why that almost visit is important yet, but but tuck it away. Tuck it away for now, and we'll come back to it. Verse 2. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Now, who is the one? Who is this one? Well, he's unnamed, but he's actually the star of the passage. He's sort of the primary subject of this passage. Look down. You see in verse 5? If anyone has caused Pain, he has caused it not to me. That's the same guy. Verse six, for such a one, same guy. This punishment's enough. Verse seven, forgive and comfort him. Verse eight, reaffirm your love for him. Five times in those verses, the same guy is referred to. He's unnamed, but he's important to the story. He's also talked about in chapter seven. Would you flip there? Chapter seven. I know, I know we're juggling all kinds of vague references here that that don't mean much to us. We're we're hearing about another letter. We're hearing about an almost visit. And now we're hearing about this guy, the one. And we don't know who this guy is. We don't know exactly what he did to Paul. But here we get a little bit more detail in chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one. There he is again. It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. That's Paul. But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Who is this, the one? Well, some scholars, older commentaries really, viewed this man as the same as in 1 Corinthians 5, a man who was disciplined by the church because he was in an incestual relationship. I used to think that was the case. 2 Corinthians 2 guy is the same as the 1 Corinthians 5 guy. Both are about discipline. But I think now, in the newer commentaries, all agree on this, that these are two different guys, or at least these are two different sins and two different discipline cases. Here's what the Second Corinthians guy and his story and this scenario looks like. Paul talked about it as the matter in 2 Corinthians 7. What is the matter? Even though these references are vague and the man is unnamed, we don't know what he did and we don't know how it relates to the church, Of Corinth, we can piece together enough details to safely surmise what was going on. So remember last week, if you were with us, remember that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in large part because super apostles had showed up on the scene and they were bad-mouthing Paul to the Corinthian church. They said Paul's suffering is proof that he is not under God's blessing. He is not blessed by the by the Lord. They said, in general, look at him, he's weak, he's small, he's he's timid when he's in person, they said. They also said he's fickle. He said he was going to come back, and he didn't. That's Paul for you, always changing his plans, always moving on to someone else, always finding a greener pasture to minister to. And the Corinthian church began to buy into that assessment of Paul. Well, all of that relates to the one, this one, this guy. Apparently during Paul's last visit to Corinth, the one confronted Paul. Maybe he's a leader in the church, maybe not, it doesn't matter. But he apparently publicly attacked Paul with the rhetoric and charges of these super apostles. We don't know exactly what was said, we could... Surmise too much, we could guess too much for sure, but it had to do something uh, with Paul's authority. It had to be an attack on his apostleship, the legitimacy of his apostleship. Now, you got to know what that means. Paul is their spiritual father. But more than that, he's an apostle. An apostle doesn't just mean pastor, or even pastor of the pastor's. Apostles in these days were the immediate hands and feet of Jesus on the earth in a way that has never been known since. So to cut off Paul, a true apostle, is to cut off the whole thing. It's to cut off the scriptures. It's to cut off apostolic authority. It's to oftentimes to turn to another gospel. And apparently the majority of the church went along with this one guy's berating of Paul. And Paul left Corinth heartbroken. It got so rough, he just left. He doesn't do that often, but here he did. Then he wrote a letter. Not 1 Corinthians this visit happened between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He wrote a letter. You see verse 3? And I wrote as I did. That's not 1st Corinthians. It's obviously not 2nd Corinthians because it's in 2nd Corinthians. That's logic for you kids. <laughs> right? So guess what? There was a letter, you want to call it 1.5 Corinthians? Sure. It's not in our Bibles. It never survived and we don't know why. We shouldn't be surprised. Surely Paul wrote more than 13 letters in his life, right? We've got 13 here, and and yeah, he probably wrote a lot more. But this letter, 1.5 Corinthians, really it's better called Paul's severe letter, his severe letter. It's referred to in verse 4, "'For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart "'and with many tears.'" We already saw it referred to in chapter 7. If I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. That's not 1 Corinthians. It's not 2 Corinthians. something in between. I wrote to you, not for the one, but for you, the church. So let's tie all this together. Paul talked about making a visit soon to Corinth, and the Corinthians expected that and anticipated it. But when Paul didn't come, the Corinthians concluded Paul's fickle, just like we were told. Or he's a wimp. He doesn't have the guts to stand up to the one or the super apostles. Or he's a charlatan, just like we thought. We knew it all along. But now in 2 Corinthians, Paul's explaining why he didn't come to Corinth as planned. It was because he wanted the severe letter to sink in, to do its work, to have some time. And he didn't want to come to Corinth and have a painful visit. He wanted to come and have a joyful one. So now these first few verses should make a a whole lot more sense. Verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Verse 3, I wrote as I did in that painful letter, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Here's the point, Paul restrained the pain that the Corinthians could have been shown by not coming to them when the topic of conversation would have been rebuke, heavy rebuke. And the point for us today is just this general principle. It sounds obvious enough, but here it is being shown to us in example form. No sin or sins deserve every possible rebuke. However wrong, however stubborn the offender is, rebuke should always have restraint. There should always be room for patience. Sometimes waiting and praying is the righteous and bold and hard thing to do. Paul shows us that here. But that doesn't mean that Paul was against all pain. His severe letter was painful, but it was loving. It was loving. So here we go. Secondly, and now we hit the gas. The pain was loving. Verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wrote a painful letter. There's no way around it. It was a letter of rebuke for the Corinthians turning their back on the apostle. He didn't write it out of sinful anger or retribution or simply to get it off his chest. He says he wrote it with a broken heart and with many tears. And yet he could also say in 2 Corinthians 7 that if I made you grieve with that letter, I do not regret it. That was its intended aim. Not grief for grief's sake, but grief unto repentance, unto godly sorrow, unto restoration. And with that motivation, it was loving. It stung, and it was loving. He did it to let them know the abundant love that he had for them. Rebuke is loving. It is loving. When it's done right, When it's done under the right circumstances, for the right reason, rebuke is loving. This is all over Proverbs. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that Proverbs talks about him who won't take correction is a fool? And him who uh, gives sweetness to the ears with flattery, he's no friend at all. But a real friend is one who confronts, one, one who, in love, speaks truth, even when it hurts. The pain was loving. Thirdly, the pain was shared. Verse 5 tells us that the pain was shared. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul is telling us here that He was selfless when it it came to this one, the one who did such harm to him. He was selfless. I mean, really, the man did harm to Paul, right? He turned a whole church against the apostle. This man sided with so-called super apostles and not true apostles. This man besmirched Paul's name. He threw him under the bus. He, He crucified him in the public sphere. And yet, Paul is like Teflon. Nothing sticks to him. He says, if anyone's caused me pain, he hasn't caused it to me. I, I'm not offended by it. He didn't really injure me. He's selfless. But, but, but he does say that there is another kind of pain that was shared. And it's shared between the one and the rest of the church. Not to put it too severely, He caused it to all of you. You see, this man caused the Corinthians pain by his sin against Paul, by his gossip against Paul, by his leadership of the church away from Paul. He did much damage to the church. And don't miss what that really is saying theologically, you could say. What that's saying in a bigger picture, or a framework kind of way. You see, Paul is alluding here to a whole theology of church that is countercultural today in our hyper individualistic age we live in. Paul is saying, when one hurts, the rest hurt. When one sins, the rest feel it. It's like he says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member of the church suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, it's holistic. It's tied together. It's, it's inextricably linked. Paul says of his own experience in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, who is weak in the church and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall in the church and I'm not indignant in some way, Paul was Teflon and nothing stuck to him. In another way, his feelings and emotions were riding the ups and downs of a church like Corinth. He was tied into it. Do you share Paul's theology of the church? This holistic, intrinsically connected view of the church? Or is church for you, like others do, a club? There's some fees every now and then, hopefully as little as possible. There's some responsibilities, and again, hopefully as little as possible. But, but there's some benefits too. There's some benefits to it. And so you're in this club called Desert Springs Church or another church. And, and is it just a club? If something goes wrong in the club, can you just withdraw and find another club? Can you just start another hobby? Is that, is that how it works? Or is it like a movie? Maybe even worse than a club. You know, we talk about going to the movies. You know, you want to go to a movie? That's the same way we talk about church sometimes. We say, we got to go to church. Well, go to church. Like you just show up, you attend, you, you, you receive it. You receive it maybe like a hitchhiker receives a free ride. He simply sticks his thumb out and he gets free gas and free car and free insurance. And if the car breaks down, he goes... Well, good luck with that. And he gets out and he puts his thumb out again, right? Is that you and your church activity and your philosophy? Are you eternally dating a church? You know those guys who've dated the same girl for eight years? Those poor girls. Maybe you do the same with church. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see. We've been burned before. We've been burned. And so eight years later... Oh, you've protected yourself so well, you've not been burned at all. Whenever it gets too hot, go find another one to date. But you're supposed to marry, right? Just like that 25-year-old or 28-year-old who's dated the same girl for so many years. You're supposed to settle down. You're supposed to covenant together. You see, a better analogy of the church is that it is a body, Hands and feet and eyes, different parts, but all making up one whole. And they're connected. It's a holistic thing. When one hand gets smashed, the whole body does different things. Arms work differently and this arm works more and on and on. You you know how it goes. So this man, the one of 2 Corinthians, he caused pain to his church in his rebellion against Paul and his leadership of the church against Paul. But he also caused pain to the church through the discipline process that later came upon him. That's the fourth thing. Punishment was decided. Punishment was decided in verse 6. It says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, before we unpack this little verse... Let's return to the backstory of 2 Corinthians that we've been trying to piece together. Remember, the one went off on Paul publicly and led a rebellion against him. The church went along with it. They followed the hothead and the super apostles and not the true one. Paul wrote the severe letter of rebuke. Well, the Corinthian church responded to it with repentance and restoration. We, we read about that already in 2 Corinthians 7. Their grief led to godly sorrow, which was true repentance and resulted in a clear conscience and a great restoration. Paul's letter worked on the Corinthian church except for the one. The one, the guy. He wouldn't... He wouldn't turn, he wouldn't believe, he wouldn't repent, he wouldn't relent. Presumably, the church continued to plead with him after the letter came and they repented and he would not. Presumably, they, just what the Bible tells us to do, kept on pleading, kept on calling him to repentance. But he didn't heed it. But... The church obeyed what Paul apparently also included in that, in that severe letter. Directions about what to do in case of prolonged and persistence, persistent unbelief and unrepentance. Remember I asked early on, what is the church to do when a sin-sick Christian doesn't see the spots on the skin of their souls They don't see the hemorrhaging going on. What is the church to do when that person resists care because it's painful, they say? When they run from the ER and they say, they're not in trouble, they're not in bad health, they're doing just fine. Well, Matthew 18 tells us what to do. Matthew 18 is presumably what happened here in Corinth. Listen to Matthew 18. You're probably familiar with these words, but we need them told to us again and again. There Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Restoration. But if he does not listen, if he keeps on in his unrepentance, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be an unbeliever. Treat him as an unbeliever. He's acting like that. Identify him as such. Then Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that's how we know the keys of the kingdom. Two chapters before is related to discipline. Here it is. We should note that both in Matthew 18 and here in 2 Corinthians 2, the church is the central operator for This thing called discipline. Notice in Matthew 18, it says, tell it to the church. And and then it says, a wayward brother should listen to the church. And and notice in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul doesn't address this to the elders. He doesn't say, everyone else, just uh, do a tic-tac-toe on your your little notepad while uh, I talk to the elders of the church. I'm going to tell them what to do in case there's discipline issues that need to be dealt with. Now, praise God. The elders of the church are to lead the church in discipline. So thankfully, the elders of the church know more about a discipline issue than you do. Thankfully, they've spent dozens and dozens of hours in, in meetings, in, in prayer, in, in, in writing emails or phone calls, pleading, 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 pleading counseling, counseling, counseling. But the elders of the church do not do church discipline and simply let you watch the last stage of it. The church does discipline. The church holds the keys. By the way, this assumes church membership or something like it. You may not like that term. But there's got to be something of covenanting together. There's got to be something of knowing who's in and who's out. Again, all these passages we're talking about this morning assume boundaries about who's in and who's out and the ability to identify what is in and what is out. Covenanting together, we call it, is something volitional. So, so just know this. If you're visiting here this morning, don't, don't worry. This does not apply to you, at least not yet. You keep sticking around, you, it might someday apply to you, but you've got to choose that. You decide that. This is volitional. It is for those who say, sign me up, count me in. I'll hold you and you hold me. I don't trust myself to hold myself up. I need help. It's for those who say, I want to do church like the Bible says to do church with others who want to do church like the Bible says to do church. It's for those who say, I want to sign a waiver up front that says, if I someday try to flee the ER because I'm out of my mind, I want you to do what's in my best interest, not what I tell you to do then. I trust you now far more than I will later on. And so I commit to this. I'm with you, and you're with me. Here's how we word it in our covenant of fellowship. Fellowship. And those of you who have signed this, those of you who are members here, you you know this, I hope well. Let's hear it again. We, in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly do most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. We further commit to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the teaching of our Savior to seek it without delay. Then the last paragraph gets personal. It's not put in we, it's put in terms of I. I. I expect and trust that as I lax in my commitment to these principles, this body at Desert Springs Church will hold me accountable with reproof, rebuke, and exhortation to keep me faithful to the commitment that I am making. And furthermore, as I commit myself to this fellowship, I realize that I am entrusted with the same obligation of mutual exhortation and encouragement. If I ever continue in my sin without true repentance... And do not hear the pleas and rebukes of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I implore this body to seek my spiritual restoration by proceeding in the steps given by Jesus in Matthew 18. That's what you signed up for. That's what the Bible describes. That's not in the Bible. I think it summarizes the Bible very, very well. But back to Paul's severe letter to the Corinthians. It brought about sorrow and repentance for most of the church, but this one, the one, didn't receive it. The church, by God's grace, did the hard work of rebuke and appeal and pleading, but did the harder work of being willing to treat him like he was acting, like Matthew 18 says to do. They eventually came to put him out or treat him like an unbeliever, not not really as punishment, even though that's the word Paul uses in verse 6, but if we think about punishment in terms of just punishment or a payment that needs to be met in order for justice to be satisfied, that's not what Paul means. He means punishment. He means pain, but with the goal of restoration. It's a loving thing. Oh, telling someone that you're acting like an unbeliever and we're going to treat you as such. Is only unloving if they're a believer. But if they're not a believer, it's the most loving thing in the world to do to say, We're going to now witness to you. I got this neighbor behind me who cusses like a sailor and he beats up on his wife and he's got a bad gambling problem. He's as lost as lost can be. I I pray for him. I I talk to him about the Lord and, and you're maybe not doing the same sins he is, but but I'm gonna put you in that same category. I'm gonna pray for you, I'm gonna to talk to you, I'm gonna plead with you, I'm to, I'm not done with you, you see? It's pain, but it's with a purpose. It was a loving thing to treat this man like he's an unbeliever because he might begin to presume on a grace that actually isn't his. That can happen. This man was acting like a believer, Like an unbeliever, and was beginning to prove the case with every failed attempt at restoration and reconciliation. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, if you haven't already, or been thinking all the way through this, I hear it all the time. This sort of thing doesn't work. It doesn't work in the 21st century, it doesn't work in America. Church discipline doesn't work. Well, I have two things to say to that. Number one, it always works. It always works. It always works even in a worst-case scenario where the person doesn't repent and it goes through all the stages and he is treated like an unbeliever on the other side. It still does several right, good things. It pursues the purity of the church. Oh, it's an imperfect purity. We are sinners all. But there is something about reflecting God's purity. We we'll reflect His character. The church is to be a, a, a picture of His glory, a display of His ways. Imperfectly so, yes, but nonetheless, as much as possible. We're to maintain the testimony of the church to the world. Church discipline shows the world we don't think we're just like you. We think regeneration changes some things. We think there is something about a new heart. There is something about, I used to be like this, and now I'm like this. Not perfectly, don't misunderstand, but genuinely and sincerely, we think regeneration works. We want the world to know when that's not it. It exposes... Hardened unrepentance for what it most likely is: unbelief and an unregenerate heart. A regenerate heart keeps repenting, not perfectly, not consistently, but generally, right? It also deters us from sin, those of us on the inside, those of us not on the block, you could say. It sobers us up. It powerfully brings home that verse. Except for the grace of God, there go I. On and on, I could go of all the right and good things that church discipline, when done right and for the right reasons, always does. It always works. But secondly, sometimes it really works. Sometimes it redemptively works. And in the case of the one in 2 Corinthians 2, it worked. It worked. You say it doesn't work? I know one right here. It worked. The passage doesn't say he repented. Of course he did. That's what changed. He repented. The punishment was enough, verse 6, verse six says, but, number, number 5, restoration was now needed. Restoration was now needed. Verse 6 says the punishment by the majority is enough. Verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now in most churches today, forgiveness and and comfort and affirmation is not difficult, it's a given. I say in most cases, there are some churches that uh, seem to enjoy church discipline far, far too much. They basically practice shunning, which is not church discipline. And they basically put someone out without any interest in restoration, reconciliation through their repentance. They've given up. They say, don't let the, the door hit you. And, uh, and they move on. And that's not, that's not good. But by and large, the more difficult thing for churches to do today is to discipline. The Corinthians, on the other hand, did the discipline The man repented, and they would not let him back in. We don't know why. We don't know why. We do know that their confrontation, their discipline worked. The man did repent. And we might wonder, why? Why would that work? Why would putting someone on the outside make them more likely to come back and, and, and repent to get there? rather than just run and flee. Well, Kent Hughes puts it so well. He says this poor excluded man understood the mountainous doctrine of the church and he could not bear to live apart from the benefits and comforts of the body of Christ. He could not bear to be apart from it. That's what discipline would have meant in this case. Removal from the Lord's Supper. It would have meant Being identified as an outsider, even if he was allowed to still attend a corporate worship service like unbelievers are allowed to attend here. But he was living apart from the benefits and comforts of the body of Christ. He was living outside the fellowship and the sacraments. Can you live outside, apart from the benefits and comforts of the church? I'm always so surprised how easy it is for some people to give up church. Sometimes someone is disciplined, excommunicated, or disfellowship, whatever you'd call it. And it's not just their steady sin and prolonged unrepentance that seems to signal an unregenerate heart. It's how quickly they just give up church. How quickly they just give it all up. They proved that the church was extremely optional for them all along, like a club, like a movie, like hitchhiking. You see, sticking with saved sinners in a covenant community is one way that we find out that we should be assured that God has changed our hearts and his love is in our hearts because his love should also show forth in love for others. First John says it like a dozen times if we love God we're going to love the brothers and sisters I love what Mark Dever says I quote this almost every year I'll keep quoting it every year until the Lord takes us home he says do you really want to know that your new life is real commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners and love them don't just do it for three weeks or six months do it for years And I think you'll find out, and others will too, whether you love God. The truth, if you love God, you will love his people, will show itself. So this means sticking with it. This means disciplining when we have to. And it means receiving repentant sinners back into the fold when they truly repent. Not after a predetermined time of punishment. That's not what Paul means when he says it's been enough. He doesn't mean time's up. He doesn't mean let them back in when you start to feel bad. He doesn't mean let them back in when it's been long enough to let bygones be bygones. It's when they repent. When they repent and relent and turn back in sorrow, in faith, there must be restoration. There must be restoration. It's unthinkable to me that one would repent and a church would not receive them back. But apparently it's possible and we should guard our hearts because maybe it's just never been close enough to us. Maybe we've never been hurt so bad that we'd be tempted in such a way. We must turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Lastly, motivations for discipline and forgiveness. And this will go quite quickly. Motivations for discipline and forgiveness. Verses 9 through 11 give us four quick reasons or motivations for doing both discipline and forgiveness of the repentant. The first one is obedience. Verse 9, obedience. This is why I wrote in that painful letter that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. It's a matter of obedience. It's not a matter of whether you think it's going to work. It's not a matter of whether you've seen it work. It's a matter of obedience. It doesn't make sense to me that getting together every now and then and having a small bit of juice and a little piece of bread and doing some preaching and singing around it is going to do much good. It doesn't make sense that it does good, but it does. And we trust God for it, right? We trust God that he uses instruments for his grace and his power and his redeeming ways. It doesn't make sense that the Lord's Supper does anything, but it does. And it doesn't make sense that discipline might work. But we obey. Another motivation is Paul's example. Paul's example, verse 10 Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake. Paul was the one who was most greatly sinned against. The one had so greatly sinned against Paul. Paul said, Teflon, Teflon, Teflon. You know, I don't even need to forgive him. If I had to forgive him of anything, I only forgave him for your sake, is an example to, to To show you this argument of, from the greater to the lesser, if I can forgive so much, what he did to you can certainly be forgiven. The harm he had done to you can certainly be forgiven in his his repentance. A third motivation is Christ's presence. Verse 10, he says, if I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Christ. In the presence of Christ, before his face, disciplines to be done unto him in worship and obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 18, about one more verse or two more verses later than where we stopped reading there, he says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. You thought that was a cute little verse about Bible study or accountability partners. It's a verse about church discipline. Jesus says, I will be in your midst when two or three are gathered together to exercise the keys of the kingdom of binding and loosing. And here Paul says, do this in the presence of Christ. You forgive. He's watching. The one who forgave you so much is watching. You do this in his presence. How dare you not forgive and then, the fourth motivation. In verse 11, it's Satan's strategies. He says, this is all so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I would not have thought of ending this passage talking about Satan. Maybe that's why I didn't write any Bible. God used Paul to bring up Satan here. Satan. What does Satan have to do with any of this? What are his designs? Well, he's against unity. He is against the church's purity. He is against assurance of salvation. He is against clear lines and boundaries. He wants churches to be harsh and unwelcoming to the repentant. And he wants churches to be loosey-goosey with sin and unrepentance. It's in his best interest. We are not ignorant of his ways, though. We have to think about that. What does Satan want here? What would Satan want here? He's against purity. He's against unity. He's against assurance of salvation. He's against clear lines about who's in, who's out. He wants it all fuzzy. We know his ways. We know his strategies, and we are not going to be outwitted by Satan. Therefore, discipline when necessary. Forgive when there is repentance. And really, there's a bonus motivation. Not at the end, but really all throughout, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's this repetition of love and joy. Love and joy. This is for your joy. This is a cherry on top. The rest is, I I know it's all been sandpaper so far, hasn't it? But here the Lord gives us a cherry on top. Love and joy. This is for love. This is for joy. Paul says, I I wanted to come and rejoice with you. And my joy will be tied up in your joy. Your joy will be tied up in my joy. We'll rejoice together. It's all for joy. We can trust him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the grand promises of the gospel that Jesus died in our place to forgive our sins and bring us to you with a changed heart to follow in his ways, not perfectly, but genuinely. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to keep us and purify us, to use others, even to use the pain that comes from another's rebuke. Perhaps even the pain that would come from something more official and more public. Lord, would you give us boldness and confidence in you? Would you give us more unity in our church? Would you give us love for each other? Love that is bold enough to talk about sin and in humility, that's such that it will receive it? We need your help, Lord. These things are bigger than us. We are not sufficient for them. But they're here in your word. You call us unto them. And so we ask for your help and trust you to do it. For your name's sake. Amen.